0: To read
1: verses
0: 1 through, 12.
1: 1 through 12,
0: I can do it. Who wants to read the rest of the chapter? I can bring Vers- that. Sweet,
1: verses 13 through 26. Great. Okay. Exodus tr- uh, chapter 20, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I'm Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of this house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children on the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands and those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day, is the Sabbath of Yahweh, your God, and that you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female slave or your petal or your sojourner who is within your gate. For in six days, Yahweh made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that it is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your God gives you.
2: You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this, You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship cattle, and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I call my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, lest your nakedness be exposed on it. So, we're in the
0: kind of the middle of Exodus, and there's a huge turning point. In chapters one through nineteen, um, Moses told us about the story of Israel's miraculous uh, rescue from slavery and Egypt's and Israel's successful flight to Sinai. And this was all done in fulfillment of God's promise. Now, from chapter nineteen going forward, we're
3: now introduced to the Mosaic Covenant, and this Covenant, as we will see.
0: The following chapter is is this formal, solemn expression of God's relationship to his people and theirs to him. And so Moses is going to talk about uh, Israel's rebellion against that covenant uh, after these chapters. He's going to talk about God's uh, re-giving or renewal of the covenant. And finally, uh, for the end of Exodus, we'll see the stipulations, all the instructions concerning the tabernacle. Um, In other words, the first half of Exodus was about this rescue from uh, brutal slavery to a a pagan king. And the second half of Exodus is about a new slavery to the one true God. And this new slavery will involve keeping God's covenant. So chapter 14, we remember uh, Israel left Egypt. The beginning of chapter 15, we, we get the song of Moses celebrating the Exodus. And then from chapter 15 through 19... Two big things, two big things that we looked at. The nature of the law, the purpose of the law, that the law reveals our sin, the law points us to salvation. And we we, we, we began to learn about the purpose uh, and uh, the purpose of Israel, what their role was. And it was a twofold purpose, right? There was a negative purpose, that every nation that curses Israel will be cursed. Uh, every nation that rejects Israel rejects Yahweh. And because of that, there's a cursing. Um, and, the po- and the and the positive side of Israel's role role in the world is that whoever blesses Israel uh, will be blessed by Yahweh. Whoever uh, receives uh, Israel's God uh, will be blessed. Will, will, will receive the same blessings that Israel receives from Yahweh. Um, last week, last Friday, in chapter nineteen, uh, Moses established the reputation of Sinai. Uh, what, what should Sinai be known for? Who's establishing the authority of Sinai, the accountability of Sinai. Sinai? All of God's law must be obeyed. His law is the highest authority. Every letter of it we have to, we have to do or there's, a, or there's a tremendous penalty. Now, in today's chapter, uh, Israel finally begins to receive the law. And God begins by giving Israel what is commonly known as the Ten Commandments, but in the Hebrew, they are referred to as the Ten Words. Look at verse 1 of chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words, right? The Ten Words. Um, and where have we previously seen the number ten? Ten plates. The Ten Plagues. And what was the significance of the Ten Plagues?
1: Tied to the creation.
0: Yes, yeah, so it was tied to creation that God was sending these plagues onto onto Egypt to demonstrate that He was He's the Creator, right? Because remember in Genesis one and two, the thesis of those two first two chapters is that God is Almighty. He's powerful. He's the kind of God that can create the universe in six days. And so by sending these ten plagues, He was telling uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptian people that. He's the creator, that all their false gods are, are weak, impotent, and and lies. So, um, and before that, where have we seen uh, the number 10, before the 10 plagues? Well, in Genesis 1, 10 times it says, God said, God said, God said. So there's, there's the 10
3: words, right? It's so the 10 plagues linked back to the
0: ten words that God spoke in Genesis 1, and so these ten commandments link link also back to the ten words of creation and Genesis 1. There's a theology of creation in these ten commandments. In these ten commandments, in these ten words, is the application of the principles of creation theology. The Ten Commandments point to theological truths of creation. So this is the idea. Israel, here are Ten Commandments tied to Genesis 1 and 2. And Israel is supposed to show the world by keeping the Ten Commandments that this is what living in Eden looks like. This is what This is how Adam and Eve lived before the fall. They lived according to these Ten Commandments. And so obeying the Ten Commandments displays this Genesis 1, Genesis 2 creation theology to the world. Now before we dive into each commandment, um, there's a structure of these, these Ten Commandments I want to point out to you. There's a structure of verse 10, the fourth commandment, or verse 9 and 10, 9, 10, 11, the fourth commandment parallels the 10th commandment in verse 17. And how, how uh, just look at 9, 10, 11, and look at verse 17 and tell me what they have in common. How do we know, just grammatically speaking, that they are tied together? We know the fourth commandment it's really obvious that it's tied to creation right Sixth day God made the heavens and the earth seventh day he rested it's really obvious this is tied to Genesis 1 and 2 but notice the words being used in 9 10 in that then in verse 17 do uh, you see male uh, female slave right both right you see uh, cattle you see ox right you see, it's the same words. And where did you see male, female, cattle, ox, donkey? Where did you see that before? In Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, so the fourth and the tenth commandment, they parallel each other. And the idea is this. In the Sabbath, it showed that God had a plan for your life. That like God was arranging your uh, weekly schedule. Six days you work, seventh day you rest and i'm I'm going to provide for you on those six days don't worry i know you're not working on the seventh day but don't worry i'm going to provide for you so he was uh, organizing their lives he was uh, managing their day-to-day operations and he was uh, providing for them within those six days and so the tenth commandment is now that god has provided for you be content with what you have Don't covet somebody else, your neighbor's goods, or your neighbor's possessions. And so that's how number four and ten command each other. The first and second commandment, found in verse three, and found in verse four, five, six, and seven, is, or or it parallels the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. Um, How do you think, why do you think they relate that way? From a thematic perspective what do the first and second commandment have in common with the fifth commandment one word <clears throat> Order. Or, or, or or authority authority right god is the authority of your life and your parents when you're growing up are the authorities of your life oh and so god's supreme position Parallels the position of parents. The third commandment and commandments six through nine also parallel each other because the third commandment to not take God's name in vain, as well as I'll kind of explain later it, it deals more with just your words. It deals with your actions,
3: and so you uh, you you you
0: you you you, uh, you refuse to take God's name in vain by living out this creation theology and how do you do that you obey commandments six seven eight and nine now are we under the ten commandments today we are not because we're not under the mosaic covenant but are we under the creation principles behind the commandments absolutely because we too must display a theology of creation how we live that tells the world that this is how life was before the fall and everybody submitted to god and these creation principles express themselves again in the commands of the new testament so specifically nine out of the ten commandments we see reiterated in the new in the new covenant in the commands of christ in the new testament Uh, but but behind that is this creation theology it's this creation theology Now, go to verse 1. Verse 1 emphasizes that when God gave these commandments to Israel, he was speaking directly to them. Moses was not an intermediary this time. And after this experience, they they were so frightened, look what they say in verse 19. Moses, speak to us yourself, and we will listen but let not God speak to us lest we die. They don't don't want direct communication with God. That was frightening. And so they, the people of Israel heard God speak in the same way Adam, Eve, Noah, Abraham, and Moses heard heard them. Verse 2, I I told you that the the commandments and the law in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the form of those commandments are in the form of what we call a, a suzerain vassal treaty suzerain warlord vassal the the, the 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 people that this warlord is over and it had a particular form um and so whenever a suzerain or warlord conquered a, a, a tribe or a people or a group he would write up a covenant and he said these are the terms and conditions of my rulership over you and so the form of the law in Exodus and Deuteronomy is in the form of this suzerain vassal treaty, and the way it began the suzerain vassal treaty it, it it began with the preamble, and the preamble identified the parties in the agreement. Who are the parties in the, gr- the agreement? Well, a regular suzerain vassal would be the suzerain, the warlord, and the people under them. And so, in this preamble. You have the two parties involved in this agreement. There's Yahweh your God, verse 2, uh, verse two and there is you who brought you out of the land. You is, is Israel. So there's Yahweh and there's Israel. That's the preamble. That identifies the parties in this covenant. The prologue, right after the preamble, explained how these two how, how these two parties. Uh, form this relationship. How did it come about? Now, a normal suzerain vassal treaty, this is how it would normally go. I, so and so, conquered you, I dominated you, I killed all your warriors, I killed all your men, and now you have to obey me because of it. It was harsh, it was brutal, it was a, a absent of any sort of affection or love, but notice how this prologue. Get prologue: What it contains. I am Yahweh your God. Why? Because I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Peace God says, "The reason I'm your I'm your Lord is because I saved you, because I rescued you." And this is just mind blowing. There's nothing nothing like this in ancient Near East. So this is called a hesed relationship. It's called a relationship of grace. Relationship of grace. And uh, again, this kind of covenant is unparalleled in history. We do not have any ancient Suzerain and Vassal treaties that communicate like this. And so we we see here there's this paradigm shift in history and how God relates to his people. There's nothing like this. What other gods rescued an entire people from bondage? What other god led... A people group out of the out of a superpower's oppression through miraculous means. There is no existing literature that we have currently that has a similar kind of story where a God freed his people from a major superpower. This is one-of-a-kind history. There's nothing like the history of Exodus. <clears throat> so we begin with the first commandment or the first word. And, and verse 3 first commandment is is you shall have no other gods before me. Literally before his face. There's there's nobody at Yahweh's level. Nobody can go up to him. He's exclusive. Uh, We need to make sure he's in his right position. The the word he uh, 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 Moses uses in verse 3 for God is not Yahweh. He uses uh, Elohim. Elohim means sovereign, almighty, exclusive. So Moses says there's no other sovereign, almighty, exclusive God. There's just one Elohim. And so where did we see this theology in Genesis before? Where did we see the the principle behind the first commandment in in Genesis 1 and 2? Well, we saw it in Genesis 1 1, right? God created the heavens and the earth. Almighty power. And there's no other Elohims in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God is the only Elohim. He's the only Almighty One. There's nobody on God's level in Genesis 1. And so, God is demanding exclusive worship in this first command. And this exclusive worship is not a surprise because the foundation of the Ten Commandments assumes the uniqueness of this God and His divine role as Creator. Uh, Genesis 1 stressed the fact that God alone was creator, that no one shares his glory. Go to Genesis 1. Go go to Genesis 1 real quick. Turn there, and and it's really obvious that you see, where you see uh, the commandment number one, the Ten Commandments. There's no other God before me. It's really obvious. It's really quite cool, I think. So look at Genesis 1. In the beginning, God, verse 2, the Spirit of God. Verse Mm 3, Elohim said, verse 4, and Elohim, verse 5, Elohim, verse 6, Elohim, verse 7, 8, God, 9, God, 10, God, 11, God, right? 12, God, 14, God, 16, God, 17, God, 18, God, 20, God, 21, God, 22, God, 24, God, right? There's no other God. In Genesis 1, no other gods before him. In, In Genesis 1, there are 32 references to God. And Moses is stressing, there are no rivals. The God of the Bible is the one who created everything. He is the one who sustains everything. And he doesn't share his glory with any other gods because in Genesis 1, he's the only one who created everything. Nothing else existed apart from him. He is supreme. Nobody is equal to him. And so Israel was to demonstrate the truth of the commandment number one in how they lived. They were not to worship anything else or elevate anything else to godlike status because there's no other god but Elohim. In, In Eden... They only worship one God. In the garden, Adam and Eve, they only worship one God. And by our worship of this one God, we're we're showing you this is how Adam and Eve lived in the garden. Um, And this creation principle is found in the New Testament. The standard has not changed for the church. In 1 John 5, it ends with,
3: keep yourselves from idols. Right? And 1 John is about,
0: The nature of Christ, deity, humanity, he is a human being. Worship him alone, uh, get him right, and do not worship any idols. So we demonstrate how important God is to us by the way we treat other things compared with Christ. Go to verse 4 through 6. The second commandment. No idolatry. Uh, Do you see creation language there? Of course, likeness, right? Heaven above, earth beneath, water under the earth. There's creation language, Genesis 1 language. The second commandment is like the first commandment. It applies the supremacy of the creator to to our lives. The first commandment said, there's nothing to be treated like God. Don't lift anybody to God. And that reality undergirds the second commandment, in that God, we must never bring God down to creation status. We don't take anything creation and lift him up and say, "Oh, he is he is the same as God." And we don't bring God down and make an idol out of them and say he's like the creation. Why? Because in Genesis one, it's clear there's the Creator and there's creation. That distinction is very clear in Genesis one. He is Yahweh. God, man was made in God's image, not the other way around. Verse 5, there's some Catholics, some groups uh, separate, uh, they divide the commandments uh, uh, differently. I think the Catholics will say verse 5 is the, is the third commandment, um, and, we, and we, we say verse 5 is still part of the second commandment just because of the grammar involved. Uh, verse 5, you shall not worship them. What, what, you, what, what is the event referring to? It's referring to the idols in verse 4. So we know they're linked together. Another uh, uh, thing we have, we have to be clear about, verse 5 says, you shall not worship them, these idols, verse 5, or serve them for I, Yahweh, your God, I'm a jealous God. And then it says this, visiting the iniquity of the fathers oh. on the children on the third and the fourth generation. Uh, this doesn't mean that he punishes the third and fourth generations or the children of or the first and second the, the second generation for the sins of the first generation. so he doesn't so in the Bible it's really clear that that you're responsible for your own sin. sin is always individual God never transfers guilt uh, but, does our sin negatively affect our kids? Are there consequences? Absolutely. Um, if I go to jail, um, does it absolutely impact my children? Oh, yeah. My wife? Oh, yeah. Big time. But does the judge say, Oh, Joel, Paul, you're guilty too? No. You're not guilty. I'm the only one who's guilty. But my sins have this generational this adverse adverse effect on generations and so uh, that's what that is talking about in verse 5 Ezekiel 18 um, if if you can go there later talks about that that you're responsible for your own guilt Uh, if the father is righteous and the children are sinful uh, the father isn't guilty or if the father is sinful and the children are um, uh, righteous um, the the, the, the children don't pay for the guilt of the sins of the father so that's really clear in Ezekiel 18. You can look at uh, that later. Uh, now we uh, we go to verse 7. And if you remember, the first commandment stated that God was supreme above all creation. Second, man, second commandment stated that God is not to be brought down to the common level of creation. And um, these two commandments were kind of like uh, two sides of the same coin. And so, unsurprisingly, the third commandment in verse 7, to not take the, Lord, uh, the name of the Lord your God in vain, can only be rightfully applied when we understand the significance of the first two commandments. So, if you understand the first two commandments, then you have the responsibility to act in a certain way. And that is what this third commandment is about. It's more than just speaking. It's just more, it's more than just your words. It's your lifestyle, your actions. See, in the biblical world, the name represented who you were. Your name was synonymous uh, for who someone was as a person. Furthermore, in ancient Near Eastern settings, it was common when you were taking an oath to take take, take an oath in the name of your God. It was expected if you took an oath in the name of that God, you were invoking that God as your accountability. If you broke the oath or you lied, that God was expected to punish you according to his power. Today we don't make oaths like that usually, but maybe when you were a kid, you might have said, uh you, you or you say, I swear it's true, right? You might have said, uh, to make a serious problem, you say, I swear on the grave of my mother. And the implication was that, that your mother was valuable. And it was guaranteeing what you said. If you, if what you were saying was untrue, you were tarnishing the reputation of the person you brought into your own. And so with this understanding of oaths oh, and names, the idea is this third commandment, to not take the name of the Lord in vain, it prohibits treating God lightly or dishonoring him. Not with your just your word, but also with your entire lives. The, the entire daily life. If you understand commandment number one and commandment number two, you're going to do commandment number three. You're not going to live in a way that treats God lightly, like he's in vain, like he's nothing, right? Everything must be meant, uh, every part of our life must be a reflection of God's supremacy, that he's the only God. There's no other God beside him. And we live out this supremacy by living out commandments six through nine. As believers in the church, do we, do we live in a way that shows that Jesus is not in vain? Absolutely. Right? He's not like anybody else. He's unique. There's no other gods before him. So even the way we worship God, you know, sometimes you'll have like songs that are like remade, like songs about somebody's boyfriend or girlfriend and they just turn them into songs about God or about Jesus. See, that's that's like you don't want to put Jesus on the level of your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Because that, that's taking his name in vain. That's treating him like he's like anybody else. No, he is he is supreme, he's the creator, right? Genesis 1 and 2, he's the Almighty One. And we don't need to live out that name and that reputation. Verses 8 and 11 is the fourth commandment, and this was the Sabbath, and this this was the idea that God controls your time, he controls your resources. As the creator, we're
3: to submit everything we have to him, and that for Israel, that would would, would, would involve giving up
0: a full day every week. Man, giving up one day a week, that's a lot of money.
3: That's a seventh of your salary. And they were Israel was supposed to keep the Sabbath to demonstrate that he was the creator and that he had the right to dictate how they were to
0: live in the created world. So by observing this one day of Sabbath rest a week, Israel communicated to the nations that they were in submission to God's control over everything they possessed: their time, their resources. He was sovereign over all of that. Number two, the seventh day demonstrated that God had a plan for creation. Right? Because when God created everything the first six days, when he rested on the seventh day, it wasn't because he was tired. No. The idea was that day eight, nine, ten, that for the rest of Time going forward was was supposed to be a time of rest, right? Peace. That was the plan for creation. The Sabbath shows that God has a plan, right? So every seventh day that Israel rested, they were telling the world that God has a plan for history, that 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 everything is moving toward seventh-day rest. Everything is moving toward a return of Eden. Eden is coming back. It was also, the Sabbath was also a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. If you look at Exodus 31, 13, and 17. Now again, in the ancient Near East, this practice has no other parallels. This was a unique statement to the other nations. For us, the plan of God has been actualizing Christ. So we don't observe the Sabbath because the Sabbath was pointing to Christ who would be, bring rest, who would bring rest finally to creation. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose from the dead on a Sunday to show rest is here. A new creation is here. And so our Sabbath is in Christ. Our Sabbath is in Christ. And so that's why we don't worship on Saturday.
2: Verse 12. Any questions so far? Uh, the second commandment: do not make anything um, um, uh, anything in, in the form of anything in heaven. You know? Could it be stretched to mean do not make do not try to make physical representation of God Himself or it just means birds? Any physical repre- representation? Uh, do, you, do you understand the enormous implication of my question? And I don't have enough. Ar- I don't yes, have. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to mean do not make images of God Himself, but yes. Three quarters of Christianity have vehemently denied that this is what the Second Commandment says. For example, uh, the, the Byzant- Byzantine uh, Church and the Antiochian church, all the churches east of Vienna, coming to God's presence through uh, two-dimensional images. They call icons. And and they they say the second commandment does not prohibit that. It it talks about birds.
3: So, so the building of the temple wasn't a violation
0: of the second commandment. Building the ark wasn't a violation of the 2nd commandment. That symbolized something else. His presence, right? Not him. So you can have icons or buildings that re- represent some fact about God, but you can't have any type of physical em- image that says, this is God. So Anything as with this is God, you can't have it. But um, you can... Some people kind of um, play games and say, okay, yeah, this is not God, but it really is God. You know? this is Mary is not God, but let's worship her and pray to her. Okay, You know, you're playing games. But the main idea is you can't say... Any physical image, you can't say that is God. Now, what about Jesus? Jesus in the storybook Bible, he's, you know, his hair. And, that's controversial. It's controversial. I know people who say, well, because Jesus is God, man... Right, because there's a he is also, he's a hundred percent human being. It's okay to have Jesus in the Bible. Um, so where do I stand on that? I'm kind of I don't know. I'm just like uh, I don't know for sure. You know, I know in uh, Kevin Young's new chat, uh, his storybook Bible, Jesus is, it's a person, but it's it's not it's there's no nothing definitive about it. It's just like a. It's kind of a weird shape, and his face is kind of like this, and so Kevin DeYoung is trying to walk the tightrope and say, you know, because you want children to see Jesus healing people, right? So he, uh, the, the artist paints Jesus in a way that he doesn't look like me, you know, he doesn't look like like uh, somebody else, uh, but he definitely has a human form. And so there's so there's uh, there, there, I think the reformers argue that even an image of Jesus was a violation of the sexual They did. The the reformers argued that. They did. Uh, So, I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, when says so many times God, 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 yeah, yeah. He's the owner. Yes. He's the owner. He's the creator, but the owner too. Yes, he's the owner too. And also, how about the cross? Because, you know, how about tattoos? People, you know, are starting to use more tattoos, crosses. Mm -hmm. Well, cross, I think, is a. Nobody says that's God. It's a reminder that Jesus died for our sins. I said, I have seen people kissing the cross and saying, uh, "You know, swearing for this cross." Or yes, you can make it into that, but I think it's—I uh, don't think. Where's the limit? Uh, I don't think. Uh, I mean, I think there is like a, uh, things that are absolutely clear. Right? Like, if you can't say, and you know, I can't bring a, uh, my son's tiger and say, hey, this is God. Well, that, that's clearly what that's talking about. But things like Jesus, uh, things like where Jesus has a, a human element, he is a creature. He is a creature. He's creator, creature, both. That's a gray area. Cross, yeah, you, you can definitely turn, you can definitely turn objects into a god that's what israel did to the temple they worshiped the temple instead of god but the temple didn't have that intention even though god said make the temple so you can turn something that god says is okay to make that symbolize something about me but it doesn't have to be that and the case and the temple is an example of that and we'll see a little bit later where uh later in this chapter where god says be careful because you don't don't want to turn this altar into something you can worship. I had a friend who was was like a pastor to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: And he confessed to me. I once visited him. I used to no, once. I visited him many times, but
0: I went to his home and he had a a poster with the face of Christ in him. (laughs) So, oh, I like this poster, I said. So maybe 20 years went by, or 10, or maybe 20 years went by, and I saw him again, and he said, "You know what? I want to confess something to you. You remember that poster I had in my home? I used to pray in front of that poster, and you know, yeah." I wouldn't pray anywhere else except in front of the yeah, yeah. So there's that danger. Yes. yes. There's that danger. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's the danger of that. Yeah, I've got to be careful about that. Yeah. So, okay, let's move on. I'll, we'll take more questions later. Verse 12. Verse 12. We go to the fifth commandment, the fifth word. And we go from man's relationship to God, the first four commandments. And now from commandment number uh, five. 10, we look at man's relationship to man, and here it shows that when God created the world, he designed authority structures within the created order, and we are to observe these authority structures because God is the ultimate authority, so for parents, by honoring your human authority, you honor divine authority. And the parent-child relationship is the foundational stage in which a child learns that he or she is not the ruler of the universe. The child learns that authority must be obeyed. The fifth commandment is kind of like a bridge that connects the authority of God within human authority. And Paul acknowledges that this principle still applies today in Ephesians 6, right? In this parent-child parent relationship. See, the family is the foundational authority construct in which humans learn about authority relationships. So if you want your child to submit to the authority of Christ one day, you have to teach them to respect your authority as their parent. See, wise parents realize and unless their children obey and respect them, they will never obey their Creator. And so it's very sad. I and mean, sometimes, I mean, uh, you know, I think that sometimes you see those TikTok videos where parents say, well, we don't have any rules for them. They can do whatever they want, we don't tell them to do that. You know, <laughs> they just learn on their own. Uh, that is like teaching them. To reject God as their authority. They're not going to uh, uh, obey the authority of parents. They'll never obey the authority of the creator of Christ. So but the best thing you can do to them, to your kids, is to teach them. And they have to respect the authority that God has given them. And so, uh, you know, we, you know, my parents, no, my, my wife and I, to our kids, to Paul, we say, we try to hammer that home. And then we try to uh, develop that, 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 that principle at school. There's authorities they need to submit to. And so, you know, the first day of uh, his kindergarten classes, we were driving, I said, I don't care about your grades. I don't care how well you do. The most important thing, you have to listen to the teacher. You have to submit to her authority. I want you. I don't want you to be the smartest. I don't want you to be the most athletic. I want you to be the very best at listening to your teacher. You have to be the best. You have to be the best. And I and I and I I repeat that lesson over and over to him. And so when he gets in trouble at school, oh, he he feels the weight of it. He's broken. He's broken. And uh, so that's what you have to do. Now. I still have work to do, you know. I need to emphasize that we're more important than teachers, you know. Like, hey, how come you you obey your teachers more than you do us? It's, it's, you know, so it's a little bit. where I still have work to do to to, uh, to get them to obey their parents. Um, verse thirteen. We, we now we go to the sixth to the ninth ninth command, and this is how we uphold God's image. Uh, in, in order, this is how we. We, we, we don't take the name of Yahweh in vain by obeying commandments six through nine. And um, grammatically, you can uh, you can see kind of the connection where, if you notice, uh, verse for the second commandment is pretty long, right? Four, five, and six. Uh, the fourth commandment is pretty long, 8, 9, 10, 11. Uh, the fifth commandment, verse 12, is kind of long, right?
3: But commandment is number seven is kind of short, terse. And then you have 13, 14, 15, 16, 6, 7, 8, 9, really quick,
0: staccato-like. And so grammatically you can see some, some relationship there. It says, you shall not murder. This Sixth Commandment emphasizes the principle of life. In Eden, there was no death. Nobody died in Eden. In Eden, before the fall, there was was human life. And so we're to value the sanctity of human life. It's it's a reflection of the creation principle that God is a God of life. He's a life-giving God. He gives us life, right? He gives us new life in Christ. So we value the sanctity of life he has given humans. That's why Christians have to be against abortion. Because you don't kill babies in the garden. But you don't kill babies in Eden. We're pro-life because in Eden there was no death before the fall. We're anti-fall. We're anti-death. And so the fifth commandment, you shall not murder, is about valuing life. And and the the principle goes beyond simply not murdering. You see the creation principle for us in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, do not be angry with your brother.
2: Because anger against a brother
0: is essentially a a form of devaluing them. You're disdaining them. Not killing someone is one way to reflect the sanctity of life, but you you also must positively value life that's how we treat each other that's reflected in how we treat each other with kindness with with, with uh with compassion with graciousness verse 14 commandment number seven we shall not commit adultery and we see that principle in creation god is holy in genesis 2 right one man one woman they become one that's a creation principle Need to reflect that the holiness of the garden. Commandment number eight: you shall not steal. This the idea here has the is the principle of lordship. The, The principle of lordship in the created order. When you think about lordship, lordship has the idea of authority, of ownership. A man is the lord of his household, a boss is the lord of his company. In Genesis 3, when, when Adam and Eve fell, they didn't respect God's lordship. They didn't respect that He had the right to withhold the, the fruit from, of, the, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil from them. So when they took, they stole. It wasn't theirs so in, in this cre- creator-creature relationship, God has designed the created world so there's built-in lordship of individuals. That all of us have responsibilities, all of us have rights, and this, the, the creation principle behind this commandment is that the world is, is structured in a way that you and I have rights that belong to you. You have, you have lordship over your environment. Example of this is private property. God has designed the world so there are certain things like your clothes, your property that belong
3: to you. To steal from you is to violate your lordship, your ownership over those
0: things. It goes against God's design. If I have $10,000, it's mine to do with with as I please. I have the right to exercise lordship over, over it. Ultimately, I have to give, give an account to God for how I exercise that lordship, but it's still my right to do. If you steal my $10,000, you're violating my God-given right and taking away what is mine. And so, I, I'm sure many, I'm not sure, I don't think anybody steals from people, but this creation principle can be seen in the way we go to the restaurants, how we tip our wait- waiters and waitresses. The waiters rely on tip for their income so to withhold that
3: would be wrong because that's what they need to survive well, by not giving them an appropriate tip we are withholding
0: what is necessary for their livelihood right and so this has a broader a- application than just stealing and so the government governments like communism or socialism it goes against the Eighth Commandment, right? Those governments—they're stealing from you. They're denying your fundamental creation right to, all have, to own your own things. And that—I mean—that application even applies. Even I think even like taxes. I mean, how much is too much? I don't know the number. Used to be early in the country, it was like two percent, and now it's forty percent. There is a number that says, "Okay, now you're stealing from me. Now I don't any. No, I don't. Own, I don't own anything." Verse uh, sixteen, the ninth commandment is the is behind that is the principle of justice. God is a god of true justice. He's a god of order. He's a god of truth. He's a god of honesty. When Adam sinned. He bore false witness and he blamed his wife. He said, The woman that you gave me, she's responsible for it. So we're not to speak in a way that reflects Adam's sin of blame shifting. So in, in a nation, you need people to, in a court system, you need people to tell the truth or everything falls apart. Verse 17. This 10th commandment is related to the 4th commandment, right? If God owns all your time, your resources, if he tells you you have to rest on the 7th day, that means you need to be content in what God gives you. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Male slave, female slave. So, Eve in the garden, what did she
3: do? She coveted, right? God said, you can have every tree. And every tree,
0: don't, no, except for this tree. So Eve wasn't content in that in what God had given her in Eden. And so we stand in opposition to the fall. We live out this creation theology. We're, we're anti-fall people. We're against the fall. Everything we must do, everything we do must show that we're we're against the fall. We don't like anything that happened in the fall and after the fall. And so the theology behind this final commandment recognizes that God sovereignly gives to his people and we must trust what he gives to us. We must trust that all that God gives gives us is adequate for us. So, if you get a house, you don't want to think, ah, you know, this is all we could afford, we made the wrong choice. You think, God gave me this house. But I'm thankful for it, and to want somebody else's house is to tell God, you know what you gave me, it wasn't good enough, right? And so this this theology, this, so we talk about uh, go to First Timothy and, and, when, and when you see this, uh, you know, Timothy talks about the church. And talks about how women are, are not to have authority, they can't be pastors, they can't teach within the church. First Timothy 2, verse 12. Timothy says, "But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet, what is the rationale that Paul gives? He gives a creation theology. 13. For it was Adam who was first formed, and then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into trespass. But she will be saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, and sanctification with self restraint. So the reason women cannot be pastors or teach within the confines of a local church isn't because of ability. It's because when somebody visits the church, we want to show them as close as we can, this is what the garden looked like. And there were roles in the garden. And Adam was supposed to be the leader and the protector and the provider. And he failed in that. And Eve was supposed to be the helper and to submit to Adam. But she failed in that. And so the church shows by our our leadership structure and by the way our marriages are conducted that what happened at the fall will never happen again in Christ. That will never happen again. Does it happen of course in the church? Sure, but it's not supposed to. And those structures within the church are to demonstrate this Edenic theology, right? So it's not about ability. It's not about there's an inherent kind of deficiencies in, 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 in women. It's about modeling the garden, the glory of the garden that is to come when Christ returns to the world. Right? That's what that's about. Um, everything's tied to creation. Go to go back to Exodus. Uh, and we'll, we'll finish up this up real quick. 20 verse 18 And then the people receive the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the And the mountains smoking, smoking, and the people perceived it, and they shook and stood at a distance. Right, this this seals the deal. The Israel—they need to fear God's word. They need to fear God himself. Verse nineteen and twenty, they're telling Moses, "We don't want to go near him." You see this contrast between God's holiness and human sin. They—they need a redeemer. They need a, a, a. a high priest. They need somebody who can reconcile them from God, holy God to sinner.
3: That'll happen in the future, but not now. Verses 22 and 23, in
0: response to this, they now need to worship God properly. And so there's a reiteration of, of commandment number one and two. Uh, no other gods. Verse 24, uh, this is how uh, you are to worship worship me, this is the basic response to God, worship is the basic response to any revelation of God altars were required and this first altar was a simple altar, verse 25 you shall not make an altar of earth for me you shall make an altar of earth for me Um, really simple, verse 25 if you want to make an altar of stone, that's fine. You should not, but you should not build it of cut stones. See, if you make the if you make the altar too fancy, you might worship the altar. So, so I want a crude altar, okay? Because you might turn that altar into idolatry. That's how much. Pro, that's how prone we are to worshipping idols. They would be in danger of worshiping their own craftsmanship. And so. There it is. And so so you have the law that reflects creation. And as I have mentioned many times before, the tabernacle, uh, the colors, the design, it was all meant to look like the garden. Um, the, 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 the high priests, the uniforms, they had designs and colors of the garden. So the priests wore Eden uniforms, right? Everything was about reflecting Eden the temple was about uh, the design of it was about reflecting eden and they were they were telling the world that our god alone can take us to eden nobody else has god right and so eden is on a hill and so the temple was on a hill right it was to say it was a replica of the garden of eden a replica of the new creation new earth and other religions they tried to copy that. They were saying, no, our God can take you to Eden. Our God can take you to the, to, 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 to new creation. And so there were copycat temples and priests. So in Egypt, you know, the pyramids, they're supposed to, they're mountains. They're supposed to be mountains to show, no, 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 our God can take you to Eden. And then in, Kings, in, the, in the reign of Solomon, what happened? Everybody said, no, no, no. And they saw the temple, they saw Solomon's temple, they said, you know what? Your God, Yahweh, he's the one that can, re- that, re- that can take us back before the fall, that can take us to Eden, right? So, so when you think of Old Testament worship, Old Testament law, uh, you are to think of Eden, the garden, and only Yahweh can bring us back there. Now, you're, this, the structure of the commandments, as you'll see in Exodus, but especially in Deuteronomy, the, everything that follows the Ten Commandments, they're category, category, uh, categorized accordingly. So the first few chapters after uh, this, I, well, I, I, I don't know about Exodus, but I know in Deuteronomy that's, that's uh, certain. Uh, and i will we'll find out later if that
2: has the same uh, structure in Exodus. I'll find out next week. But I know in Deuteronomy,
0: you, the structure is there's Commandment 1 and 2, and then right after the 10 commandments all the stipulations all the details that that's under category one and two commandment number three what follows that that it kind of goes in order one two three four five six seven nine nine and all the stipulations under the category of those ten commandments and those now those those stipulations that about the slavery about the you know sacrifices about what kind of what kind of clothes you're to wear all that kind of stuff we don't have to follow that but those stipulations are important because they teach us how to apply the creation principle behind the law so the more examples we see of a principle it helps us to think of all the different examples we also can apply the principle it's like math there's a what there's a You have a formula, right? Okay, chapter 10, we're going to learn this formula. And then every example is about, has something to do with that formula. And the idea is, after 30 problems, in a test, when you get other problems that are like that, you'll know how to solve it, because you're like, oh, even though the problems are different, but because they're like that formula, there's, there's that pattern there, you know how to solve the other problems because you solve the other problems. So things like, you know, garment, you know, what does that have to do with me? You know, mixing wool and linen. They're very they're very helpful because it's like you're doing math problems. Because you still have to obey the creation principle. But how do you do that? Uh, it takes wisdom, and the stipulations of the law help you figure it out. So. Well, that's kind of a preview but well, what is to come. All right, I'm done. Any questions? Uh, Angie? Um, so going back to Mark
1: 8, so I know that you did it, but the Sabbath was pointing to Christ. Yes. Yes. Can you yeah. expand on the idea of what? Is it, well, I mean, like, after the fall, is it like bondage through sin? Or does it have to
3: be
0: good? Right, right. So in the garden... You had spiritual rest, no sin, perfect communion and fellowship with God. You also had physical rest. There were no diseases, no hurricanes, no uh, no no famine. All the food you could eat. You never had to worry about starving. No winter. No winter.
3: So you, so you had physical rest and you had spiritual rest. You had both, right? That was, that, was the,
0: that was the purpose of God created Eden, to give that both kinds of rest. Now, when the fall came, we lost our spiritual rest and we lost physical rest. Separated from God, enslaved to sin, right? And all the consequences that come from that, diseases, hurricanes, winter, mosquitoes that are coming in a few weeks, all that kind of stuff, We lost all of that rest. So the Sabbath, when Israel kept the Sabbath, they were telling, they were communicating to the world that, you know what? Life is pretty crummy now. We don't have spiritual rest. We don't have physical rest. But one day our God will bring us back to that rest. Like, one day we're going to enter an eternal Sabbath. Right? And that Sabbath came in the person of Christ. Christ said, "All who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, and I will give you what? Rest. And He meant all rest. He meant spiritual rest. He meant physical rest. All the whole package, just like Eden. And so, because when, because after the res- after the resurrection, like we have this new chapter, final chapter." The spiritual rest has already come, right? Reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sin, Holy Spirit. uh, So half of the rest has come. The spiritual rest has come. Um, And so so we don't have to keep the Sabbath anymore because we already have spiritual rest in Christ. But we don't have physical rest. We still get diseases, still get cancer, we still die. We are sometimes our children. We have miscarriages, uh, droughts. We lose our jobs. Uh, we get robbed. That that part of the rest is is still yet to come when Christ returns. And so uh, we display spiritual rest um, by the by how we. Uh, Demonstrate the fruits of the spirit. How we live out the fruits of the spirit, and we show the world when we there's love, joy, peace, kindness, that hey, I'm enjoying my Sabbath rest in Christ. Look at all the fruits of the spirit of my life, right? And so, so our our Sabbath rest has come in Christ as we as we bear the fruits of the spirit, and we say and we say to. Believers, when we share the gospel, you can have rest, too, in Christ, in Christ. And so, if Saturday was a sign, or the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic covenant, you can almost think of it like this. Sunday is the sign of the new covenant. It's the sign that rest has already come in the resurrection, new life.